What's up, guys? I'm Jared Lopes, and you're listening to the Dad Tired Podcast, where I'm helping everyday families learn how to follow Jesus in everyday life. There's a woman in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Her name's Hannah, and she is not polished at all. In fact, she's broken deeply. She's hurting really deeply, deep in her soul. There's this, there's this sense almost of depression, ongoing, just angst. And the cause of it is the fact that she's not able to have children. She can't bear any children. Some of you know that reality well. And your heart hurts and it feels like there's a chunk of your soul missing as you're not able to have any children. And everything that you're feeling, if you're in that situation, Hannah would have been feeling that to the nth degree because in ancient Israel culture, much of a woman's worth and value came from her ability to have a a child, specifically a son, so that she could carry on the name and legacy of her family, her husband's name. And so in ancient Israel, if you were not able to have a child, there was this sense of worthlessness, of purposelessness. In fact, it was so, such a big deal that if you weren't able to have a child as a woman, it wasn't uncommon for your husband to actually take on a second wife in order for her to try to have children's to car- children to carry on the name. Now, Some of you high school guys think two wives, that's awesome. Uh, and you married men are like, no, dude, I can barely handle one. But in ancient Israel, it was common for a man to take on a second wife to carry on name. Now that is not God's design, so don't get any ideas here. That's not God's design. God's design was always that marriage would be between one man and one woman. Um, But in their culture, they thought it's so important that we carry on the name that we'll take on a second wife in order that she would have children. And that's what Hannah's husband did. She took on, uh, her husband took on a second wife. And this second wife was mean to Hannah. She bullied Hannah. She ridiculed her and made fun of her for not having children. So, I mean, this just added to Hannah's emotional stress and just her being distraught. And if that weren't enough, I mean, all the messiness of that, if that weren't enough, every year as a, as a person in ancient Israel, you would make the pilgrimage uh, to the temple where God resided and you would take some animals and you would sacrifice them on behalf of your family. You'd take the animals, you'd sacrifice them to God, then at the end you'd eat a big meal and kind of celebrate what God is doing. So the whole family would go, um, but Hannah would sacrifice for herself, but she didn't have any children to sacrifice for. So she would see her husband's other wife sacrificing all these animals for her children, and they would eat and feast, and year after year she would feel broken, and she would just be hurting. I mean, just reminded over and over again that she feels worthless. In fact, the one place that she should feel closest to God, right, the temple, where God resides is the place where she feels the most broken, maybe the most shame and worthlessness. And some of you can relate to that. Coming to church, you would think, is the one place you should feel closest to God, and yet, this may be the place where you feel the most shame, the most guilt, the most distant from God. And Hannah, one year, she's at the temple, and she is absolutely broken. In fact, she sits in front of the temple and she begins to weep and cry out to God, God, please give me a child. God, please give me a son. 
In fact, she says, God, if you'll give me a child, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I will give him for your kingdom, for your work, for your service, for your glory, but God, please give me a son. And the priest at the temple, his name's Eli, he sees her crying and she's weeping and she's moving her lips, but she's just praying to herself, so she's not really praying out loud, and he thinks she's drunk, so he says, why why are you drunk at the temple? She says, "I'm I'm not drunk, I'm crying out to God, my heart hurts. My heart is deeply wounded. I'm not able to have children. And he said, may God grant you your prayers. May God answer your prayers. And Hannah leaves and goes back home with her family. And one of the coolest parts of the story, the scriptures say that God remembered Hannah. God remembered her. God heard her prayers. And she's able to have a child. And she names him Samuel. And she does just as she promised she would do. She takes Samuel, she goes back to the temple, and she says, hey, remember me, the one you thought was drunk? God answered my prayer. I have a son, and I'm giving him to you for for God's glory. And so Samuel, she doesn't even raise her own son. She gives him to the temple, and he's raised by Eli to know the scriptures, to fall in love with God. And God ends up giving her more children, And every year, I love this part in scripture, uh, as a parent, every year it says that as she would go back to make that pilgrimage to sacrifice on behalf of her family, she would bring Samuel new robes. She made him new robes. It was just like classic mom, right? Just like continuing to bring gifts. I mean, her heart deeply was in love with her son. And there's Samuel being raised in the temple. He's not, he didn't come from this like great, awesome family. He came from actually a pretty dysfunctional family. His dad had two wives. His mom is very normal and broken, hurting. And here he is, being raised in the temple with Eli, and he learns about God. He studies the scriptures, and he begins to fall in love with God, to be used by God. In fact, the Bible says that the favor of God is on him. And he grows up and becomes a a young man. And and Eli should have passed on the torch to his sons as the priest, but his sons were a train wreck. And so Samuel actually gets the torch from Eli. And he becomes the judge of Israel. Now, if you remember Bill saying last week, that's not like courtroom judge and it's not a king. Uh, For our context, it'd be like a spiritual advisor. Samuel's a normal guy who deeply loves God, who's being used by God to point the nation of Israel back to him all the time. That's his role. And so as the, as the nation goes through wars and they go through all kinds of different things, Samuel's role is to constantly point the people back to Yahweh. That's God. He points them back to God all the time. And Samuel is faithful and he loves God and he's, he has integrity and he does what's right and he goes to pass the torch now to his sons. And that's where we pick up in the story. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel? There's a Bible in front. If you didn't bring one with you, try to bring one with you. It's helpful just to write thoughts and notes in your own Bible. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 8 will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible here. We're going to read the whole chapter, so hang in. Try to stay along with the story. It's not too long. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, And they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old 
and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants will, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered to them, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, go back, everyone go back to his own town. Sometimes uh, it's common for us to look at scripture as a bunch of little stories, which is true, but they're all stories that fall under one grand story of God. We've talked about this a lot before. There's the story, or the Bible is actually one grand story of God. In order to fully grasp the significance of what's happening in this chapter, we have to jump back 400 years earlier in the story. These same people, the Israelites, were under another king named Pharaoh, and they were in Egypt, and they were enslaved and oppressed, and they cried out to God, God, save us. God, help us. We're in slavery here, and so God, again, remembers his people. He hears the cries of his people, and he miraculously frees them from slavery. He takes them away from Pharaoh, and he gathers them together, and he says, you will be a nation, a kingdom of priests and I will be your king. Now this is crazy, because every other nation had a king. Every other nation had a leader that would lead them, but not Israel. Israel knew God as king. God said, I I am appointing myself as your king. Every other nation has one, but you will know me as king. And this permeated, they knew this. This wasn't like fluffy, kind of cute little talk. They knew God. God ruled, he sat on the throne as their king of Israel. We see it in the Psalms. If you turn to the Psalm, Psalm um, 89, verse 18, it says this, indeed our shield belongs to the Lord, our king, to the Holy One of Israel. You'll see it again in Psalm 149, verse two. Let Israel rejoice in their maker, Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. The people of Israel knew that God, Yahweh, was their king. He was their president. 
And so when we get to, it, when we get to Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we read that story, the significance is huge because they for 400 years knew God as king. These people that are asking Samuel for a king knew that. And so essentially what they are saying to Samuel is, we want to impeach God. We want to take God off of his throne and we want a man in his place. We want to be like every other nation. Give us someone to lead us. Yes, we know God is awesome. We know God led us and he led our grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents and he's been faithful. Yeah, we get that. But we want a king to lead us. They were essentially impeaching God, taking him off of his throne and replacing him with someone else. Now this is a big deal, but it's actually not uncommon. We see all throughout scripture, mankind, humanity doing this, trying to take God off of his throne and replacing him with someone or something else. We see it, it starts all the way back at the very beginning of the story, Genesis 3. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? God is ruling over them. Everything is perfect. It's exactly as God designed it to be. Relationship is perfect. There's no sin. And yet Adam and Eve say, hey, I, want, I know God is awesome, but I wonder if there's something more. And so they're enticed by an apple or the thought of having more wisdom or being godlike. And so they say, yes, we know God is great. Things are actually perfect, but I wonder if there's something more. And they turn their backs on God. They take God off of his throne and replace him with something else. We see in Exodus when God is leading the people, the Israelites, out of slavery, right? And they, Moses, their leader, leaves for a couple days and they say, hey, let's collect all our jewelry and melt it and make a golden calf. Yes, we understand that God has been faithful to us. He's miraculously taken us out of Egypt, out of slavery, but... But I wonder if we could have something to worship, something that we can see, something that's tangible. We see it in Judges with Gideon. Uh, Bill talked about this a little while back. Judges 8, verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. What's Gideon saying? Hey, don't forget Israel, you guys. I'm not gonna be your king. My son, my grandson, they're not gonna be your king. God is our king. Remember, we serve one king, and that's Yahweh, God. But the people have a reputation of always trying to take God off of his throne and replace him with someone, an apple, a golden calf, a king someone or something else. And that's what we see in Samuel chapter eight. The people saying, we want to impeach God. We want him to be off of his throne. Yes, we get that he's awesome, but we want someone else. This is a big deal. Now, there's all kinds of purpose for scripture. If you read uh, Timothy, he says that there's all, the, the reason we have scripture here, there's all kinds of reasons, but two of the main reasons are this. Number one, to reveal to us who God is. Now, every single person in this room has, uh, we are likely to make this mistake. 
we start to make up in our minds who we want God to be. And so I start to ask you, hey, what's your God like? You believe in God, tell me what God is like. Well, God often likes the people you like, he likes the things you like, he doesn't like the people you like, and he doesn't like the things you like. And if you pry long enough, our gods start to sound a lot like us. So essentially, we just start worshiping ourselves, but say, it's God. And we all can fall into that trap. And so, scripture is used so we don't do that. God actually has a personality, he has a name, he has characteristics. And so we want to serve the actual God of the Bible. We don't wanna just make him up in our head. And so scripture first points us to who God really is. Number two, it points who are we. It exposes our hearts. Based on what we know of God, now who are we? And do you know what scripture teaches is one of the number one, the biggest problem of humanity? Do you know what scripture suggests that is? I'll give you a hint. It is not uh, smoking or drinking or cussing or watching the right TV show or wrong TV show or music or tithing or going to enough Bible studies or wearing the right clothes or coming to church enough. That is not mankind's number one issue. You know what the scripture suggests that it is? Idolatry. That's why in the first of the 10 commandments, anyone know what that is? First of the 10 commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the only God. You should put no other God before me. Idolatry. Now, that can feel old school. It's like, Jared, I don't know, like when I think of idolatry, I'm thinking of statues and incense, and like I don't think many of us in our living rooms are bowing down to that kind of stuff. But idolatry is essentially anything that we are finding hope, security, identity, satisfaction, comfort, security, If you're finding those things in something, that is a God. It's an idol, and all of us do it. It's like, God, yes, I know you're awesome. I know you're great, but if I could just be married, then life would start. Then I would feel satisfied. What are you doing? You're putting hope, comfort, peace in something other than God. If my husband or my wife would just act this way, if I could just get a girlfriend or just get a license or just finish school or just get this degree or get this iPhone or this car or this house, whatever it is, it's yes, God, I know you're great, but I wanna take you off the throne because I think there's someone or something that can give me something more than what you can give me. where you're constantly taking God off of his throne and replacing him with someone or something else. Many of you know that I have uh, two children now, a, a little baby girl and my son who's two and a half and if you follow me on Facebook or Instagram, you're probably annoyed by the amount of pictures that I post because uh, I think I've got the cutest kids in the world. And one of uh, my son who's two and a half love him like crazy, but he is in one of these phases where he is the pickiest eater. And if you're a parent, you know this, uh, that this is a season for your children. He just, he will not eat whatever we put in front of him, which is super frustrating, because we'll put like really good food in front of him, and he just won't eat it. And as a dad, I'm like, come on, man, you're gonna love it. And his, his food of choice right now is instant microwaved mac and cheese. That's his like go-to. Uh, some of the college students are like, that's my go-to as well. I don't... 
that's all he'll eat. He lo- and he does it with a smile on his face. He's just like, this is awesome. I love this. Powdery, instant, stale mac and cheese. This is so good. Thank you, Dad. Some of you are judging me as a parent, but I... He just loves it. And as a parent, I get super frustrating because we've got good food. We're eating like chicken and steak and good veggies and stuff. And he just won't eat it. And in fact, I try to give it to him and he like makes his face and he, he throws a fit. He wants his mac and cheese. And I do this thing. My wife hates when I do this, but when he's not looking, when we're at the dinner table, he'll kind of get distracted and I'll take a bite of something and just shove it in his mouth really quick. <laughs> because as a parent, I'm like, dude, you just have to try it. If you just try it, I promise you will love it. And he's like, oh, he makes this gross face. Like, oh, why can't you put that steak in my mouth? Like, give me more mac and cheese. <laughs> and there was one time I was feeding him, and he's eating his mac and cheese. He's got this cheesy smile on his face, pun intended. And he's, you know, he's, he's eating his mac and cheese. And I was thinking, I wonder if this is how God looks at us. Like, hey, I am the king of the universe. I have everything under control and everything in my possession. I am God, I am king of all kings and I am offering to be your king and you're choosing mac and cheese? (laughs) Like you really want your mac and cheese? Yeah, like God, I know, I know, honestly I do know, you're awesome, you're like a steak dinner, I get it, but I really need a boyfriend, or I really need a girlfriend, or I really need this much money in the bank, or I really need this job, or I need this boss, or I need my wife to act like this, then I'll be satisfied. God, yes, no, I know you're good. I know you're good, but please, can I have mac and cheese? Please. And we've been doing it from the beginning of time, from the start of humanity, Adam and Eve. God, I know everything's perfect, but I'll really, can I get the apple? God, I know you miraculously saved us from slavery. You took us out of Egypt, but I need a golden calf that I can worship. Something I can see, it's a little more tangible. God, I know you are the best king possible. You've been so faithful to us, 400 year term. You've been awesome, but I wanna be like the other nations. Please, for my identity, can we just have a king? What's your but? That's a weird question. And leave church today. What'd you learn? I don't know. Jared asked me what my butt is. <laughs> we all do it. Yes, God, I know you're awesome, but. And it's crazy. I mean, we were replacing the steak dinner with mac and cheese. God, I know. Think about this. Lord, I know that you know me intimately that you know every hair on my head, every thought that runs through my mind, every mistake I've made, and yet you still love me unconditionally, faithfully pursuing me, relentlessly pursuing me with your love, but I really need a companion who will love me. I mean, what must that be like to God? What? I mean, you're gonna trade a steak dinner for mac and cheese? God, I know, Lord, I know that you own a a cattle on a thousand hill, that everything is in your possession, that you are good, you are faithful. You take care of the birds in the sky and the wild beast of the field. God, I get that, but I am freaking out about my finances. I'm scared to death. What must that be like to the king? To God saying, I'm God. 
I'm offering to be your king, and I'm the best, and I'll take care of you. Yeah, but I really need a better job. It starts young. We do, the, we do this all the way, like, all the way back, I remember probably the first, like, thing that I can think of that I started to take a good thing and start to make a God thing. It's like, back in high school, man, if I could just get my license, then the world's gonna open up. Remember that? How'd that work out? <laughs> How'd that God work out? If I could just, once I graduate high school and get into college, then my world's gonna really open up, then I'll be good. Once I get married, or once I have this degree, or once I get this house, or once I travel a little bit more, these are all good things, but we're, we elevate them to God things. We, we wanna find hope in them. We wanna find satisfaction and identity in them. Once this happens, man, then I'll be satisfied. Now hear me out, I am madly in love with my wife. Love her like crazy. She's so beautiful and she's so much fun to be around. I enjoy her. I delight in her. But she is a terrible God. I asked her permission to say that because even though she's not God, sometimes she can. (laughs) She's a terrible God. If I'm looking for hope and satisfaction and identity in her, she'll let me down and vice versa. If she's hoping, Jared, I need you to give me comfort and I need you to be my protector and my provider and my strength, I am a sinful, broken man and I am a terrible God and I will let her down as God. And the reality is when we start to put God, we would put things in the status of God, they frustrate us and we frustrate them because they will always let us down as God. Your boss I need this person to treat me right. How's that working? How's that God working out for you? Man, if I could just have kids, then I'll be satisfied. I'll tell you, those little gods are loud (laughs) and expensive and selfish and eat mac and cheese all the time. Like they don't work out as God. Love my kids, terrible gods. License, students, college, Boyfriend, girlfriend, they are all terrible gods. Salt water, I like to call it. When you're really thirsty, when your soul really thirsts for something, when you're really thirsty, anything looks like it'll satisfy, and so you, salt water, you take a drink, and for but a second, your soul feels satisfied. Your, your, your thirst is quenched, but for a second, and then you end up more thirsty. And in fact, you drink enough of it, it'll kill you. The bad news is you and I all the time are constantly taking God off of his throne and replacing him with something that falls ridiculously short. And I've told you this before, I've said it the last few times I teach, God should have left, right? Like this should be the end of the Bible. You want another king? You want a king that's gonna lead over you and rule over you? I'm telling you, Samuel's telling you, it's not gonna be awesome like you think it is, but all right, you want a king? Fine. Here's your king, I'm out. You want your mac and cheese instead of a steak dinner? Fine. Take it. I'm out. That's the bad news. We always take God off of his throne. Here's the good news. In the New Testament, there's a guy named John the Baptist and he starts to prepare the way for Jesus and he says this, the kingdom of heaven is near. Another way of saying that is the king of heaven 
is near. Our king didn't bail, he showed back up. Good news. The king showed back up and he said, listen, this invitation is not just for the people of Israel. This invitation is for anybody who wants me to be king. He said, the road is narrow. Very few people are gonna find it, but if you're willing to lose your life and come into my kingdom, I will be king again over you and I will satisfy you. What your soul longs for, this king will satisfy good news. In fact, one time he's with this woman at a well and she's sleeping around. She's not with a man that's her husband and she's getting water out of the well and she's clearly looking for something, for identity and purpose and hope and, 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 and all of that. And Jesus is with her. And he says, do you want water that will, ne- that will make your soul never thirst again? She says, absolutely. He says, it's me. You are searching for things. You're chasing after salt water. You want fresh water that will satisfy your soul. It's me. Come to me. Jesus later says, I am the bread of life that sustains you. Is your soul hungry? I can sustain you. I can satisfy you. Good news. The king has come back. He didn't bail on us. And he says, I'm still the best king who will satisfy your soul. He's the best God, the best king. I was talking to my best friend about this and he asked me, Jared, are you really satisfied? Like, take off your pastor hat for a minute. Honestly, are you satisfied? Does your soul feel content? You mean to tell me you're not chasing after other things to, to give you hope and security and comfort and identity? And I know there are many of you who are probably asking the same thing. Here's the reality. More often than not, I am eating microwaved mac and cheese. I am settling for way less than what my soul actually desires. I do it all the time, if not daily, I am taking God off of his throne and replacing him with something that just looks ridiculous up there. But I've sat with the king and I've ate the steak and it's awesome. My soul has found satisfaction in Jesus. And even though I wander from the table, I know what it's like. And my soul longs for it. My soul longs to come back to King Jesus where the steak dinner is and be satisfied in him and him alone. My soul longs for eternity when the king will come back forever and my soul will forever thirst and hunger no more. There is a God that satisfies. I've experienced it. Yes, I wander. But there is a good God, a good king. There's a steak dinner. And many of you have tasted that. Your soul has tasted satisfaction in God. And yet you're chowing down with a smile on your face on instant mac and cheese. Can I just for a second play the role of Samuel in your life? To remind you that that God that you're chasing after, that you were hoping to be satisfied in, whatever it is, will let you down. It will not satisfy you, I promise you. No God ever does except the God, Jesus Christ. It's good news. I'm not here to give you bad news. I'm here to give you good news. Your soul is hungry. Your soul is thirsty. There's a God who can satisfy. And if you've tasted that, I'm inviting you back to the table this morning. Come sit with the king. It's good. Give up your paper plate, 
your instant mac and cheese, there is a God who wants to love you and give you his identity. He loves you relentlessly, unconditionally, faithfully. He's the only God that satisfies. And some of you did not know that there was a steak dinner. You thought life was constant leftovers of mac and cheese. Good news, there's a God who can satisfy your soul. There's no fancy prayer you need to pray. There's no religious traditions that you have to go through. You just need to tell God today, God, I'm sick of all the other things that I've tried to make God. I wanna make you God of my life. However you need to tell him that. And would your soul find satisfaction in Jesus and him alone?